This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Dr. Tanya Freilich is a developmental behavioral pediatrician who earned her medical degree at Yale University, her pediatric residency at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and completed both a developmental behavioral pediatrics clinical fellowship and a National Research Service Award fellowship at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. She is currently Professor of Pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's, where she serves as Director of Research and Associate Director of the Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics Fellowship Program. Dr. Freilich served on the committees that developed the American Academy of Pediatrics and Society for Developmental and Behavioral Pediatrics Clinical Practice Guidelines for ADHD and Complex ADHD, and is currently President of the Society for Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics, as well as leader of the ADHD node for the National Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics Research Network, DBPNet. Dr. Felix will discuss unpacking ADHD, the impact of co-occurring conditions on ADHD assessment and treatment. Thank you so much, Dr. Takayama. Let me get my share my slides and we'll get rolling. Um, So first, I will let you know that I don't have any financial um, relationships or disclosures. And today we're going to talk about some key neurobehavioral conditions that can coexist with ADHD and recommendations for their diagnostic evaluation, um, as well as treatment when when these conditions coexist with ADHD. Um, So we'll be using our Society for Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics Clinical Practice Guideline for Complex ADHD um, as a framework, and we'll even be going over some algorithms um, from the guideline. So first, we want to make the important point that is actually more the rule rather than the exception to have neurobehavioral comorbidity with ADHD. In fact, only about a third of kids have straight up just ADHD and two-thirds have one or more coexisting neurobehavioral conditions. So we have a case, a first case. So Maria is struggling with sixth grade. She has trouble keeping track of her homework and materials for school. Her grades have fallen. Her worry level is through the roof. She has problems concentrating. She seems increasingly restless and irritable. She has trouble sleeping. So what could Maria have? So if you're thinking, wow, this could be ADHD, it could be depression, it could be anxiety, you are right. And so what important elements of the history can help us distinguish if a kid um, has ADHD or or an internalizing disorder? Is it the presence or absence of problems concentrating or academic underperformance or irritability or emotional outbursts? Or is it the timing of symptom onset and their persistence over time and across settings? Well, if you're thinking E, um, that is correct. And that is because um, ADHD, anxiety, and depression Um, have many shared aspects. And in fact, the um, DSM criteria for all three include difficulty concentrating. And these are not part of the DSM-5 criteria, but all three may also involve irritability and emotional outbursts, sleep problems, and academic underperformance. So how are you going to tease out ADHD only versus anxiety or depression? 
So one important thing is to ask about the quality of internal distractions. So in case of ADHD only, you're going to get this history that, you know, they're distracted by random things, what they're, what they're going to have for lunch or what's going out at, uh, on outside their classroom window. Whereas with anxiety, they are ruminating on that thing that they're worried about. If they're depressed, they're fixated on their thoughts of doom and gloom. The onset and persistence of symptoms also helps you. So ADHD is a brain-based um, condition um, that has um, symptom onset early in childhood that is um, persistent over time and across settings. Whereas for anxiety and depression um, only, um, the, the onset of the inattention coincides with the onset of the anxiety or depression. Anxiety tends to wax and wane, so inattention that's due to anxiety only would as well. So kids with anxiety tends to flare when they're in certain um, settings or situations, and in those situations that trigger their anxiety, if the inattention is only due to their anxiety, then you'll see the inattention get worse. Whereas when they are in a more comfortable setting um, and they're more relaxed, um, if the inattention is only due to an anxiety, um, then those attention problems will improve. And um, similarly, if the inattention is solely due to depression, when the depression lifts, um, the, the uh, inattention will lift when the mood lifts. So in, in terms of screening and teasing out anxiety and depression, I just want to mention a few screening tools um, that you can use. There's the Pediatric Symptom Checklist 17 that is completed by the caregiver that'll screen for both anxiety um, and depression. Um, there's the screen for um, child anxiety related emotional disorders or the SCARED, um, and it has versions that both um, the caregiver can complete as well as a version for the child to complete. Um, and then the um, Patient Health Questionnaire 9 or PHQ-9 modified for adolescents is completed by the adolescent, and it's specific for um, probing for depression and includes questions about suicidality. So what about coexisting ADHD um, and anxiety or depression? How common is this? Well, very common. So in clinic referred children with ADHD, an average of about 25% have comorbid anxiety and about 25% have comorbid depression. As far as treating um, ADHD um, when it and if training a child who has coexisting ADHD and anxiety, here you see an algorithm from the complex ADHD guideline. And the general principle is first to identify the condition that is more impairing and treat that first. You don't want to begin treating both at the same time because treatment of one can improve the symptoms of the other. And you don't want to give, be giving more treatments um, than you need to be. The guideline also considers behavioral treatment as foundational, um, whether it's anxiety or um, uh, ADHD that's driving the bus. Um, but the guideline also stresses um, the importance of shared decision-making and recognizes the role of clinical judgment when considering how to sequence treatments. So if you find that um, anxiety seems to be the more impairing condition, and so you're going to lead with treatment of anxiety, um, first you're going to um, refer or um, 
you know, well, prefer or figure out how to get the kid cognitive behavioral therapy and evidence-based um, behavioral treatment for anxiety. Um, and if that's not doing the trick, um, then we consider an SSRI um, for medication management. So what about treating um, ADHD when anxiety is coexisting? Well, in the landmark MTA trial for coexisting ADHD plus anxiety, ADHD behavioral treatments alone were actually as effective as well-titrated medication for reducing ADHD symptoms. But for many outcomes other than ADHD symptoms, um, combined methylphenidate medication and behavioral management achieve the best results, um, including for anxiety symptoms, as well as other things like social skills, parent-child conflict, oppositional aggressive symptoms, or academic difficulties. Now, you may be scratching your head now saying, hmm, uh, you know, I, I know, we've heard a million times that uh, methylphenidate can have anxiety as a side effect. So why is it that it seems to be um, helping with these anxiety symptoms? So um, you may be interested to know that two recent meta-analyses, um, one by Posi et al. and then the other by Coughlin et al., actually showed that on average, methylphenidate seems to actually reduce anxiety and irritability rather than worsening it, while um, amphetamine um, seems to be the stimulant with um, a bit more of the risk of emotional lability as well as sadness. Again, this is on sort of a group level, and that's not just, and we of course know that some kids do have anxiety or irritability as a side effect of methylphenidate. And in fact, um, our group at Cincinnati Children's was very interested in this. You know, what predicts the kids that are going to get better with um, the anxiety or the irritability um, and which ones are going to get it as a side effect of methylphenidate? And so um, we were interested in looking at whether or not the child's baseline levels of internalizing or oppositional irritable symptoms could predict which way this was going to go. And we found something that might be a little bit different than what you would expect. We found that it was those kids who had more problems with that emotional symptomatology at baseline before they even started the medication those were the ones um, who seemed to have improvements in anxiety, sadness, and irritability with methylphenidate treatment, whereas it was those kids who didn't have much difficulty with those emotional um, symptom, that emotional symptomatology before trying the medication that seemed more prone to having emotional side effects with methylphenidate. Now, if you think about this, this does make some sense in that irritability um, can be thought of as emotional impulsivity. So if you've got a lot of that emotional impulsivity at baseline, and then you take a medication that treats impulsivity, um, then you can see that irritability um, get better because it is treated as well. And that also um, kids with ADHD are used to being on the hot seat all the time. You know, their parents, their um, teachers are at them because they're not with the program, they're not doing what's expected. And that can lead them to be being feeling very uncomfortable, anxious, down on themselves. And so when they are appropriately treated um, and their ADHD is better, you can see them feel more comfortable, less worried, um, and less down on themselves. 
So what about treating ADHD and depression? Um, so the first thing um, that you want to do is to look for the red flags, um, things like suicidal or homicidal ideation, prior suicide attempts, psychosis or mania, or severe impairment. And if any of these are present, you want to refer to psychiatry. Um, if they're not, then the same general principles um, apply as for ADHD plus anxiety. You want to identify the condition that is more impairing and treat it first with behavioral treatments being foundational. Um, so if you find that the depressive symptoms um, are more impairing, um, then you, you want an evidence-based um, psychotherapy um, to start, including cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, and if that's not um, getting you where, getting the child where he, um, they need to go, then considering an SSRI. So if you've determined um, that Maria has uh, longstanding um, ADHD as well as a new um, onset social anxiety disorder, and you find that her ADHD seems to be a greater cause of impairment than her anxiety, um, and in fact struggles with ADHD seem to be exacerbating her anxiety, and you find um, that behavioral treatment has not yielded significant improvement, um, and the family is discussing uh, ADHD medications, um, what would you want to try first? Um, so in this case, coexisting ADHD plus anxiety, ADHD being more, being more impairing, which of these medications um, are you going to, to discuss with the family first? And the answer is methylphenidate. Um, and so to address um, ADHD symptoms in the case of coexisting internalizing disorders, again, ADHD behavioral treatment is foundational, but stimulants are considered um, first-line medication treatment with methylphenidate um, being preferred because on average, um, and particularly in our study, we found that kids who had coexisting internalizing symptoms at baseline, um, it didn't seem to exacerbate them. Um, but I do also want to say that atomoxetine can also be effective. So now we have Sadie, who's a nine-year-old girl whose mom is fed up because she doesn't follow uh, mom's rules or directions. Mom says that she's an annoying child who is constantly bothering her parents, siblings, and peers. Um, so this vignette can fit in an important condition that can mimic or can be comorbid with ADHD. And that is oppositional defiant disorder, um, for which the symptom criteria includes, includes things like often losing temper, arguing, refusing to comply with rules, deliberately annoying others, blaming others, being touchy, angry, or spiteful. So how are you going to differentiate? Is it ADHD only or ODD? So one thing is thinking about that um, ODD criteria of or thinking about that phenomena of failure to follow rules or directions. So you're going to see this in both conditions, but it has a different origin. For ADHD only, it is problems, or in the case of it's due to ADHD, has it's due to problems remembering or being um very distractible. Um, and so you get stuck, you know, kind of interested in something else and uh, then forget what you were supposed to be doing. Whereas in ODD, um, it's due to defiance and actively refusing um, to conform to others' requests, even though you remember what you're supposed to do. Um, in the case of um, annoying others, so yes, kids with ADHD can be very annoying, but 
it is not purposeful. Um, it's due to them being so impulsive or so hyperactive, whereas in ODD, there is a very persistent pattern of deliberately going out of their way to annoy others. And then what about um, high activity level and impulsivity? So in ADHD, in the case of combined or hyperactive impulsive presentation, this is present by definition. Whereas in ODD alone, if this is not typically seen, this is not part of the ODD criteria. Again, though, things can get um, very complex um, and confusing because um, we can have ADHD coexist with oppositional defiant disorder. And in fact, um, we, you know, we can ask ourselves, you know, how common does this appear to be? And the answer is 50%. It's actually very, very common. So you find that Sadie has comorbid ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder. Interventions that have been shown to improve ADHD and oppositional um, behaviors include behavioral counseling, um, specifically behavioral tra uh, parent training, um, or is it stimulant medications, alpha adrenergic agonists, atomoxetine, some combination of these? And in fact, there's evidence that all of these can lead to improvements um, for children who have ADHD and oppositional behaviors. Parent um, training, uh, parent behavioral training is absolutely um, shown to be helpful. Um, stimulant medications, um, alpha agonists and atomoxetine, all, there's data that show that all of these um, are helpful um, in this setting. Um, but stimulant medications um, have the lift the largest effect size and are associated with the largest improvements in ADHD and ODD symptoms. So what about a patient who has been having difficulties with impulsive aggression? This patient frequently loses his cool, becomes upset, throwing things, hitting, kicking siblings and peers, but afterwards he's remorseful and sorry for his actions. So this is hot aggression or impulsive aggression. What are you going to do for treatment? Well, the first step is behavioral or psychosocial treatments um, per our guideline. And if insufficient improvement, um, consider medication treatment. And so what is um, considered to be first-line medication treatment for ADHD and impulsive or hot aggression? Um, is it an, a typical antipsychotic, an alpha agonist, a stimulant, or a stimulant plus um, an alpha agonist? Um, and the answer is a stimulant. So there have been numerous studies have, that have shown that stimulant medication can lead to robust improvements in this impulsive aggression in children with ADHD. And also um, there's some data that antisocial, other antisocial behaviors such as stealing are also improved, probably because they're sort of impulsive in origin. And for this reason, the Texas Children's Algorithm recommends trying and optimizing dosing of stimulants first before trying or adding other agents. So our next case um, involves 11-year-old Brian. He meets criteria for ADHD. His mom has been looking at the internet, at the autism spectrum um, DSM criteria. She's really worried because um, she's reporting that he has these um, fixated interests. He has problems with conversation. He has problems 
um, with social interactions, maintaining friendships, his behavior isn't appropriate to the social context. She's really worried and she's, she's calling you, she's sending you a my chart message about this. Um, so one thing um, that I wanted to um, mention is that there are evidence-based tools um, that can help you um, with, with in, these, in these settings um, in screening for autism spectrum disorders. And the social communication questionnaire is one evidence-based tool to screen for autism spectrum in kids who are ages four plus. I also want to talk you through um, some of the ways that kids with ADHD only can, um, uh, will often look different from kids with ASD um, on these uh, different ASD criteria. And so let's talk first about that um, big bin of restrictive repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, and activities, and specifically the criterion of highly restricted fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity or focus. Well, it's important to know that with ADHD only, um, kids can absolutely get really into and focus on things that, that they really love, that they find high interest. In fact, we have a name for that, and that's called hyper-focusing. And in the ADHD world, we have a saying that... Um, it shouldn't really be called attention deficit because it's not that kids can't pay attention. It's more of an attention allocation problem. They have sh problems shifting their attention away from things that they find highly interesting and toward things that, um, that are uh, more boring to them or are more difficult for them um, when the situation calls for it. But the difference is that kids with ADHD, the things that they are getting really into, they are um, typically not so unusual for age. Whereas, um, so if kids with ADHD get a history that they're really into video games or they're really into you know, Legos, um, that is not you know, this big red flag for autism spectrum disorder because those things are um, more uh, age appropriate. Um, something that's a bigger red flag um, for autism spectrum disorder is when the kids are preoccupied with things that seem very unusual for age. And in fact, um, the Mulligan and all did a study using the social communication questionnaire and, and found that, you know, kids with ADHD only are going to score um, a bit higher than typically developing children on the social communication questionnaire, although usually not in the range of ASD. But there are certain questions that um, that really seem to differentiate um, kids with ASD. Um, they'd flag on these, but kids with ADHD only not so much. And one of those questions was having a preoccupying interest that seems really odd to others. And it gives the examples of things like traffic lights, drain pipes, timetables, things that typically developing children are usually not really, really into. So what about um, the criteria of insistence on sameness and flexible adherence to routines, ritualized patterns of behavior? So for ADHD only, um, there are studies looking at comparing ADHD only to ASD. Um, and one thing that's been noted is a tendency in the ADHD group toward high novelty seeking. Um, whereas kids with ASD, a tendency more toward low novelty seeking. Of course, again, we know things are always complex. And so I do want to point out that if you have ADHD plus coexisting anxiety, that's going to 
blunt that sort of high novelty seeking, um, and you won't see that as much. Um, ADHD only, um, classically, we see a lot of difficulties adhering to or following routines, whereas with ASD, um, kids can be very fixated um, uh, on routines and really, really thrown off um, when their routines are disturbed. So what about this big bin of deficits in social-emotional reciprocity? And then one of the criteria is um, failure of normal back and forth of conversation. So kids with ADHD only um, can have a lot of difficulties with conversation, but um, qualitatively, that's more manifest as um, because they have problems um, with interrupting others. They, you know, can't hold themselves back or they're just, you know, not not so in attentive. Um, but a difference is that they speak on a variety of topics. They have a broader range of interest, whereas um, kids with autism spectrum disorder are more stuck on their, um, their preferred area of interest, always wanting to steer their conversation back in that um, direction for that more odd or unusual thing, um, even if the, the people, others are not talking about that and others are showing complete lack of interest um, you know, in, in that particular topic. We can also see a phenomenon called um, pop-up phrases where kids with ASD may be repeating a phrase um, that they've heard. It could be something on a, a video um, that they heard or an expression, and it doesn't seem to have any relation to the conversation and doesn't seem to have any cumulative, pur cumulative purpose. It's like they're just playing with language and enjoying repeating that, but not because they're using it to communicate. Um, regarding the criteria of reduced sharing of interests or emotions. So in ADHD only, um, we don't see this, um, that, that drive to share joy and um, share enjoyment with others is very much um, intact. So you get this history that they're excited about something and they want to bring their caregivers um, uh, this thing to show them. Um, and they're using eye contact accompanied with that, like this girl in the picture. She wants to show her painted hands and she's holding them out and she's, you know, there's eye contact with that. You know, they're excited about something and they, you know, they'll, they'll point to it and they'll use their eye gaze. So they'll point and look at the thing they're interested in. They'll look back at the caregiver, then they'll look back at the thing they're interested in as if they're wanting to use their eyes to draw the caregiver to look at that thing. Um, so that's a really nice coordinated typical pattern. Um, and we see impairment of that in kids with autism spectrum disorder. Um, and we get more of a history, not that they're just showing like, hey, look at this, this is really cool. I want to share this with you. But they're more bringing things to the caregiver when they need assistance with them, when something is broken and need to be fixed or the battery to be changed. Also in this deficits in social emotional reciprocity, there's the criterion of failure to initiate or respond to social interactions. So ADHD only, um, we see that this drive to initiate social interactions is, is, is intact. Um, it may be unsuccessful because they may be intrusive or off-putting in the pace or intensity by which they're initiating, but that is, that is an intact drive. Whereas in autism spectrum disorder, we see a blunting of that drive to initiate social interactions. 
What about um, understanding and maintaining relationships? Um, so one of the criterion um, in this bin is difficulty adjusting um, behavior to the social context. So kids with ADHD, yes, oftentimes the behavior is not appropriate to the social context. But a big difference is um, that this is due to their hyperactivity or their impulsivity. They get carried away, but they know that their behavior is inappropriate. If you ask them later, they will they they realize that. Um, and again, we have another saying in the ADHD world that it is not a disorder of knowing what to do, but it's a disorder of doing what one knows in the moment and in the environment um, when it's appropriate. Whereas in autism spectrum disorder, the problems with adjusting the behavior to the social context is due to fundamental lack of understanding of what is appropriate. What about that criterion of absence of interest in others or peers? So in ADHD only, um, we don't see this. We see that intact um, interest in others or peers. Um, so for autism spectrum disorder, it's fundamentally a problem with being able to understand other people's perspectives, um, to put yourself in another person's shoes, to understand how they feel. And so as a result of that, one of the questions that uh, Mulligan et al. found distinguished kids with ASD only from kids with ASD from kids with ADHD only was um, the social communication questionnaire of failure to comfort caregivers when the caregiver is sad or hurt um, and the child is age four or five. So they just weren't, um, this is reflecting that problem, picking up on the caregiver's emotions of being sad or hurt. Um, and so because of this, kids with autism spectrum disorder are not described as empathetic. So in my evaluations, if the parents are saying how they're, the child is highly empathetic, you know, really attuned to other people's emotions, that would not be consistent with autism spectrum disorder. Um, and on the flip side, um, similarly, if they say this child is really manipulative, they really know how to push people's buttons, that would also not be consistent with autism spectrum disorder because that requires being able to understand another person's perspectives, to be able to get in that other person's head and, and know how they're going to respond in the situation. So what about deficits in nonverbal communication? So um, the criterion of having abnormal eye contact, body language, deficits in understanding or using gestures. So for ADHD only, um, we talked about that intact nonverbal skill um, development. You see this child here in this picture who's using a gesture. He's accompanying that with, with eye contact. Um, I do want to be, though, you know, again, everything is very complex. So um, to point out that, you know, if we've got coexisting anxiety, that, you know, kids with anxiety often will have diminished eye contact when they're in unfamiliar situations and they're very uncomfortable. But a difference is this would not be pervasive across situations that this will, uh, eye contact will improve when they're more comfortable um, and with their with family or close friends. Whereas with autism spectrum disorder, um, we are seeing um, those more pervasive difficulties with eye contact, as well as um, odd um, or wooden or reduced nonverbal communication. 
or we can see um, exaggerated body language, so unusual body language. And that history would be more common in a girl with autism spectrum disorder than a boy with autism spectrum disorder. A couple of the questions um, that were found to differentiate ASD from ADHD only on the social communication questionnaire are failure to accompany requests with eye gaze or gestures, um, and um, the past or present use of another's hand as a tool. So again, the typically developing child will, you know, sort of will use an index finger point for the thing that they want, and they'll accompany that, you know, with eye contact to try to, you know, draw the caregiver to look at that. Whereas kids with ASD, we can get a history of, you know, a very unusual point. It could be an index finger point. Uh, I'm sorry, a middle finger point or a whole hand point as opposed to an index finger point um, or and not use, accompanying that with um, eye gaze in the same nice coordinated way. Or it could be um, using another person's hand as a tool. So instead of pointing the things that they want, they'll actually take um, and put their hand on the caregiver's hand and place it on the thing that they want. So what about kids who have um, autism spectrum disorder, but also ADHD? So they would have to meet full criteria for autism spectrum disorder. So qualitative differences or deficits in verbal and nonverbal communication, as well as social emotional reciprocity and restrictive repetitive patterns of behavior or interests. And then superimposed upon on top of that, you have the ADHD symptoms. And this situation is actually pretty common. Um, in fact, um, half or more of children with autism spectrum disorder do seem to have significant symptoms of inattention um, and hyperactivity or impulsivity. So regarding treatment of kids with ADHD and autism spectrum disorders, of course, we know that no medications improve core autism spectrum symptoms. So we want to make sure that our behavioral and educational interventions are in place. Um, if your kiddo with coexisting ASD and ADHD um, has tried behavioral and educational interventions, but the ADHD symptoms are not improved as much and the family is interested or not improved enough and the family is interested in trying a medication, um, what is first line medication treatment um, for ADHD symptoms in kids with ASD? So the answer uh, to this um, is methylphenidate. And that is because um, methylphenidate has the most data, the most evidence for efficacy and safety in coexisting autism spectrum disorder and ADHD. Though you should know that compared to typically developing children, response rates um, for methylphenidate are lower and discontinuation rates are higher um, because side effect rates um, do seem to be higher. Um, we don't have as much data on amphetamine treatment in coexisting ADHD plus ASD, although that is another option. Um, and there is some data that shows benefits of atomoxetine and guanfacine um, in kids with ASD plus ADHD, but not as much data and the data is not as strong as what we have for methylphenidate. So that is just a quick whirlwind tour um, in thinking about ADHD in the setting of coexisting conditions. And so now we'll see if um, what questions we have. Dr. Felix, thank you so much for unpacking ADHD. And it sounds like ADHD is more complex than not complex. 
Yes, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and that's why we have jobs, right? <laughs> So um, there are a number of questions. I think the first two are related to um, ODD. Uh, and uh, one question is, how much ODD is actually ADHD that was diagnosed and supported late, leading to ineffective coping strategies and a strain in the relationship to, between the child and adults? Yeah. No, I think that that is, that is very, very insightful because you know, kids with ADHD being so emotionally impulsive are really primed toward ADHD or ODD. And then um, we also can often get in this, parents can get in this cycle um, in which, you know, the kid with ADHD is, uh, is difficult to manage. And so parents have difficulty setting limits on the child and then um, we'll, you know, try to lay down a rule, but then we'll sort of go back on it because it's it's just too much to try to uh, to follow through um, with the rule and with the discipline. And because of that, kids with um, ADHD, um, if they're inclined toward being oppositional, learn that being oppositional works because if they if they pitch a fit, they're going to get what they want. And so um, one thing that we know about oppositional defiant disorder is that inconsistent and harsh parenting practices, it's like, you know, gasoline on the fire. It really makes ODD flourish. And so when kids with ADHD are not treated, parents have not learned those behavioral interventions, their medications are not helping to manage behaviors, and parents are inconsistent or parents are harsh because they're so stressed, again, that can really um, be a driver of ODD. So I think that's a very, very insightful question and just shows um, why it's really important that we um, we identify ADHD early and, and we treat it early to prevent um, these more challenging behavioral patterns from taking hold. So um, thank you so much. And I'm going to skip to another question in another arena, um, which is really um, sort of the societal interactions in the school system. Um, and so I, I think just as much as in the family, if the uh, the school system doesn't recognize or uh, uh, responds in a way that um, uh, creates, let's say, more problems. Um, is there a way to assist in that um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, bringing school districts to task or um, uh, what options do families have? Yeah, so um, by law, kids with ADHD um, can be classified as having an other health impairment and should be eligible for having a 504 plan and having then um, a special sort of plan that the teachers would follow in order to, to kind of help them along. And it include th- can include things like, you know, having them sit close um, to the teachers so that they don't, you know, have intervening between, you know, the teacher and sort of the, the, the instruction. Um, so many distractions um, as they would have if they're in the back of the classroom, you know, kind of special signals between, you know, the teacher and the child for, you know, kind of helping to manage behaviors, um, daily behavior um, report cards and reward systems in the school setting, 
um, <clears throat> all of these things can be extremely helpful. Now, unfortunately, um, again, if it is hard to, to um, take the, you know, the school district to, to task about this um, if they are not if they're not implementing them. Um, but one, you know, some of the things that you can do, um, a lot of um, states um, will have um, ad advocates that families can contact in order to help them with um, interacting with the school. Um, that, that is something that can be really helpful. Also presenting, you know, sort of a formal letter requesting a 504 plan and accommodations to address ADHD. It's really key that you have that formal letter because once you put that in writing, then the school system, um, there's a paper trail saying that they, they need to respond to you. Whereas if you um, if parents just ask, you know, mention it to a teacher and you sort of verbally request it, you know, that doesn't have any teeth and there's no paper trail um, that the school, you know, needs to respond. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.